0: Welcome to the University of Sydney and the Sydney Ideas public programme. My name's Dirk Moses. I'm an Associate Professor of History in the department here at the university. Before we begin, begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge the land on which we meet of the Gadigal people, the Eora Nation. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Sam Moyne back to the Sydney Ideas series tonight for his talk on the political origins of Global Justice, which is co-presented with a program called Inventing the International in the Laureate Research Program in International History, and the Sydney Intellectual History Network. The format for tonight is a presentation by Professor Moyne, followed by a Q&A, which I'll run. We have a handheld mic, which we'll pass around for your questions. Professor Moyne and I have been acquainted for 20 years when we both started as fresh faced postgraduates at the University of California in Berkeley in August 1994, so one month short of 20 years. Stan, Sam was the star of the program, that was clear from the outset. Uh, it was no accident that uh, his first job was at the University of Columbia, I think in 2001. I came here in 2000. And uh, only recently, as he moved to the Harvard Law School, where he's a professor of law and history. Uh, In 2010, I think it was, he published the book called Human Rights in History, uh, The Last Utopia, which has made an enormous impact in the field on the history of human rights. His most current project is on uh, human rights and global justice, and that's what we're going to hear about today. Thank you very much, Sam.
1: Thank you to Dirk for that introduction, uh, which was impromptu actually, and very well done. Uh, I'm very glad you all could come. This is um, work in progress, as Dirk mentioned. It's part of a larger book I'm trying to write about human rights and distributed justice, um, and I hope uh, the connection will become clear. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948 with its provisions for economic and social rights, housing, healthcare and the rest, was broadly ignored when it was propounded, even though it's idealized in our time. I think this is a puzzle that has to be uh, solved. In the prior work Dirk mentioned, I've proposed that the Universal Declaration actually came very late in its own era. It was essentially a tardy charter for or template of the National Welfarist Project, to which all North Atlantic states had already committed themselves uh, after the rising expectations they had generated in wartime through their promises to their citizens. The text of the Universal Declaration tells us clearly that it's, quote, a common standard of achievement for all peoples and nations. And the number who understood the Universal Declaration in the 1940s as the basis for a more transnational or international political arrangement or project was tiny. Essentially, the new document registered a higher level of consensus than before or since. That 19th century classical liberal citizenship needed a serious revision. But of course, human rights provided an optional framework for that update. In general, it drew on other idioms, ranging from Christianity to communism. The creation of the British welfare state, to take a, a known example, was hardly defended in terms of individual human rights. Thanks to decolonization, the national welfareist promise uh, for which human rights provided a, a synonym became a global project through a kind of modular propera- propagation each state seeking national welfare. Now, obviously, I couldn't claim that after World War II there was no internationalism. In fact, there were many kinds, like further attempts to regulate warfare in the Geneva Conventions of 1949, or uh, new mechanisms to avoid macroeconomic catastrophe. The point, rather, is that we can't find a prominent internationalism that, like ours, involve the foundation of or significant appeal to individual human rights. Now, all of this makes the centrality of human rights to our imaginations, I think, surprising rather than straightforward. And it seems clear that the meteoric rise in prominence of the Universal Declaration since about 1970 has gone along with a transformation of what many of us thought was our most cherished project. Now the document has become not a rather belated and dispensable and ignored charter for welfare states at home that it was in its own time. Instead, it's the basis of a new movement and perhaps a premonitory dream of a new sort of international or post-national regime, especially one meant to attend to foreign atrocity and misrule. Most glaringly, in the work of the leading NGOs in the field, which rose from the 70s until our time, economic and social rights have generally been left aside, even though they were central to national welfareism, uh, as international human rights assume prominence. Now, if this version, very controversial, of human rights history is correct, and, and not everyone agrees with it, let me assure you, a new debate has arisen. What to make of the coincidence of the scale or leap of rights beyond the national welfareist project some of us celebrate. With the crisis of the national welfarist ideology, we often deplore. The retreat in our time from state provision and the reversal in the global south from a kindred strategy of developmentalist autarky to one prizing a radically stripped down state entry into a liberal trading regime coupled with longing for direct foreign investment, often unfulfilled. Now, so far, uh, I think there are two dominant positions to take in uh, response to this coincidence, the internationalization of rights and the crisis of the national welfarist project with which human rights were once associated. One view is apologetic, the coincidence is accidental. Two phenomena can be historically concurrent without any more connection between them. And in fact, now accepted economic and social rights, one might argue, could provide the best line of defense even if it's only a low floor of protection against some of the worst consequences of the victory of free markets on the world stage in the past few decades. But then there's the other position, and it's typically Marxist. It says that human rights aren't helping. They're uh, the sugar that's helped make the bitter pill of neoliberalism, so-called, go down. And if so, uh, are implicated in the victories of market fundamentalism we've witnessed across the world. Now I'm trying to find a position in between these two, the mainstream and the Marxist. One lets human rights off the hook, the other reduces them to so-called neoliberalism. I think that historical companionship is bad enough. I think we should credit international human rights with normative value and perhaps practical uses when it comes to stigmatizing evil states. Uh, from totalitarians in the Soviet Union, from the 70s through the, uh, their, their disappearance, uh, to petty despots uh, like in Syria today. But as far as I can tell, human rights, language, and movement uh, uh, movements have been a failure so far, imposing, let alone enacting, any opposition to the economic developments they've been forced to accompany across their own short lifespan. If you like, human rights have been powerless bystanders to transformations against which they've promoted almost no resistance, even as they've become something like our sole vocabulary for making ethically inflected claims about global order. In particular, the practical uses of human rights when it comes to economic and social rights that were central to the Universal Declaration, seem disappointing, if not non-existent. And they're entirely unrelated to an, a broader egalitarian agenda that the national welfareist agenda not merely propounded, but took very far relative both to the 19th century and to our own time of galloping hierarchy. That's the point of the now much celebrated findings of Thomas Piketty the Universal Declaration coincided with a parenthesis in world history in which equality was achieved better, but only within national welfare states and some of them at that. So it's with that, with that general picture in mind that I'm gonna talk about a tiny and marginal a set of people whom I hope will help us think about these fateful world historical developments. And of course, I'm referring to philosophers who invented something in our time called global justice? I think it's one version of the human rights revolution of the 1970s and since. Why this focus, unless you happen to be interested in philosophy for its own sake? Well, I think one reason to care is that global justice seems to present a strong counterexample to the trends I've just outlined. The cosmopolitans in our philosophy departments who've invented liberal global justice since the 1970s think about human rights on the world stage in tune with the human rights revolution of our time. But they've done so by globalizing economic and social rights and even an egalitarian demand that was once restricted to national welfareism, claiming that our humanity is strong authority for claims to social justice beyond borders. They can't be charged with exchanging, as it sometimes seems the rest of us have done, the strong and expensive though restricted solidarity of fellow citizens for the weak and cheap though universal solidarity of all human beings. But I want to suggest that uh, they're part of the picture, the disquieting picture uh, that I've, I've, I w- I'm exploring uh, uh, when I think about the rise of human rights, but in a, an intricate way. So you'll have to bear with me for a bit as I talk about this uh, group of philosophers. What was global justice? It arose through uh, this unsettling so-called cosmopolitan claim that whatever we might owe our fellow citizens, we first of all owe our fellow human beings including when it comes to distributive justice. Cosmopolitans took John Rawls's difference principle from his epic-making book, A Theory of Justice, 1971, which, as you'll recall, permits inequality, but only when it serves the least advantaged. But the Cosmopolitans proposed, very radically, to elevate Rawls's social contract and the warrant for redistribution that the difference principle provides to the whole world. Rawls's students, as one of them, uh, Martha Nussbaum put with a little self-congratulation, breached the frontiers of justice. Now the truth, I think, is is a bit different than just this a bit celebratory notion of where global justice came from. I wanna show that the globalization of Rawls's approach to distributive justice occurred in reaction to a prior proposal about world economic relations that arose as the acme of the decolonization process. Almost forgotten now, it was known as the new international economic order or N-I-E-O. Those who work in the field of global justice say that cosmopolitanism took long and proved hard to achieve, given the millennial background of provincial moral conceptions. Family, tribe, and especially nation ruled out the precious insight that cosmopolitanism offers into our common humanity. This unusual awareness uh, accumulated slowly in a tradition they say that began with the Stoics in the ancient world. It was revived by Immanuel Kant in the Enlightenment and finally they rediscovered it and broadened it uh, to the, to economic justice. I think this tradition is a flimsy construction. Actually the Stoics and Kant share little with each other and less with today's cosmopolitan theorists of global justice. And there are two much more important origins of global justice. Uh, and More generally reasons to worry that account they offer of themselves is limited. For one thing human universalism is very common in history. If we look back across the ages, we find lots of universalists fighting with one another over the one true universalism. But the other is that global justice emerged in these very concrete, I think I'll call them political circumstances, in which there was an enemy, the NIEO's rival account of global justice, which actually came first, as I'll try to show you. So let's look back at this moment in the 1970s when global justice was invented. I'm going to have a a protagonist. His name is Charles Bites, still living, teaching at Princeton University. By common consent, he invented uh, this idea of global justice, or at least the globalization of Rawls's justice. Uh, Rawls's revolution in political theory has been called the house that Jack built and a corresponding essay calls global justice the house, house that chuck built uh, and it was just as personalized in its initial architecture uh, there are some differences between rawls and bites the bites i'm talking about today was a young man actually a graduate student when he invented global justice just in his 20s uh, and um, instead of having an immediate massive impact, his work in the 1970s really waited for the end of the Cold War to boom. But with those provisos, we do have to look at origins, which matter. And in retrospect, Bitz's contribution has been enormous. His graduate school friend, uh, again at Princeton University, named Sam Scheffler, recalled recently that at the time, Bitz's topic was met with these are Scheffler's words, polite condescension. It seemed to most of us as peripheral to what uh, Rawls's theory raised, but now Scheffler continues that Bites helped invent a new subject, uh, the subject of global justice, which is now uh, one of the most hotly debated areas within political philosophy. I add that actually it's been massively influential in Australian philosophy departments, but that's another story. Now, how do we account for the origins of global justice in Bites' hands? There's deeper disciplinary background here in Anglophone thought, uh, especially if we think that global justice, first of all, globalized a very specific philosophical position, John Rawls's thought, which of course then had to come first. Uh, there's a lot of work now on the origins of Rawls's approach to justice and economic justice in particular. It dwells on the later 60s, right before the publication of A Theory of Justice in 1971, and especially the crisis of domestic consent around the Vietnam War in my country that seemed to open room for the impact of his work. But remember that his work in A Theory of Justice still sounded in a national welfareist key. If you like Rawls in my story as the last welfareist, and his book actually proved historically the swan song of national welfareism, uh, given that it was about to undergo so much attack and erosion. It wasn't the en- enunciation of national welfareism as a set of popular ideals, though it did theorize it in a new way. If that's all right, then the globalization of justice requires some separate account than one that would tell us where Walt Rawls' thought came from in the first place. In the aftermath of the publication of of A Theory of Justice, and very precisely in 1972 through four, there was a terrible outbreak of world hunger. And it's absolutely true that this prompted some novel reflection uh, within the Philosophical Guild. You may know Peter Singer's famous paper on famine, which appeared in 1972, and he tells us in the first line that it originates in his thinking about displacement and hunger following on the cyclone uh, and a successful independence bid in what became Bangladesh across the years 1970 through 1972. And this proved mere prologue to the so-called world food crisis of the two years thereafter that struck a lot of places across the globe, including Bangladesh again in 1974 when a million died. So clearly Singer's paper sparked a, a discussion of the moral implication of the worst sort of destitution in the world when it reached the depths of mass starvation especially and that was a massive contribution. But I want to suggest that only gets us part way. A focus on absolute destitution that might make justice, as actually it it was in Singer's thought, a matter of charitable palliation, at least as a first step, immediately seemed very narrow for a number of philosophers, uh, like Henry Hsu and Thomas Nagel, who thought we needed to make the international system a topic of inquiry into what just social relations would look like. Uh, And these figures cited Chuck Bites for seeing that we could make the globe or think of the globe as the sort of basic structure that Rawls had thought was the topic of just social relations within states. Uh, And I think it's here that the NIEO was to matter so much. Because just as the global food crisis broke out, the global south was also becoming the scene of an open and at the time very shocking revolt against prevailing global hierarchy, which of course still prevails. What was the NIEO, the new international economic order? I'll be brief, it was a post-colonial challenge to North Atlantic, geopolitical and especially economic hegemony, established in the age of empire and ratified at the close of World War II Uh, including in the Bretton Woods institutions. The NIEO emerged from a complex earlier history uh, and it was given strength by the new number of uh, states that decolonization created, but especially by the economic disturbances of the early 1970s, which suddenly opened the prospect uh, of a fundamental remaking of world order, which people took as a very serious possibility. It was especially the brief role of OPEC in assisting the NIEO that uh, made the NIEO frightening in the years which are these years just after 1973 when the oil shock so damaged the North Atlantic industrial democracies. This alliance galvanized the movement uh, and inspired fear and anxious commentary amongst the rich. Uh, and in humongous quantities when we look back. What were the NIEO's demands? I think they're very simple. They said they were faced with the inability of the post-colonial developmentalist state to launch quick growth on its own. If you like, they were faced with the limits of the modular reproduction of national welfareism that had occurred in the North Atlantic. Post-colonial freedom had been won, but growth had not occurred. Uh, through the same mechanisms that the North had tried. And so the NIEO hoped to take a number of new and radical steps. One was to assert sovereignty over natural resources and more radically to redo the international system of economic governance to restore equity to global wealth patterns after centuries of extractive colonialism. The NIEO demanded massive aid increases, credit on favorable terms, and and debt forgiveness. I think the crucial fact about the NIEO we need to keep in mind is that it's a governmental rather than non-governmental agenda. It was a program of self-determination in the movement's buzzword in which global economic forces, including in a pioneering debate about multinational corporations, were going to be made to serve the new nations, not vice versa. Uh, The governmental project was also a subaltern internationalism, a mode of alliance politics which called for and demanded the reshaping of existing hierarchies of governmental power, which the alliance spokesman claimed worsened or maybe stabilized the economic order that permanently disempowered the historically weak in the global south and immiserated the historically poor. So its plan for global justice by no means uh, uh, superseded nation states. It presupposed them, uh, or at any rate, it presupposed uh, post-colonial nation states as fora and agents of solidarity, especially when they acted in concert. And it's, I'll come back to this very important point. Uh, the declaration for the establishment of the new international economic order was uh, propounded at a special session of the U.N. General Assembly in the spring of 1974. The oil shock had just happened several months earlier and suddenly these claims by the Third World were given attention. Above all, in the Global North, observers feel a general spike in commodity prices. What if the fear went, uh, other things went the way of oil? Uh, The French President, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, offered a famous diagnosis of what was happening. He said that OPEC's quadrupling of oil prices was the revenge on Europe for the 19th century. Another statement of that moment said that it was the first time since Vasco da Gama that uh, mastery over a fundamental decision in the economic policy of center countries escaped their grasp. Uh, as certain peripheral countries arrested it from them. Uh, and then there were the NIE's bolder uh, calls to correct inequalities. This is the language of its dec- declaration, redress existing injustices, uh, eliminating the widening gap between all the developed and developing countries. Uh, and these claims set off. Uh, uh, a, a fair bit of, of storm and stress until within two years it was clear that the North Atlantic industrial democracies would weather the storm in part because OPEC's alliance with the NIO proved somewhat fickle. And yet this moment I'm going to claim in between 1973 and 5 was generative because it seemed to people that something new was possible or it would happen. Uh, 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 even if it wasn't desired. A conflict between two worlds one rich one poor is developing Time magazine the leading news magazine of my country remarked in late 1975 and the battlefield is the globe itself. So I think uh, it's surprising that these developments are forgotten Uh, They were taken very very seriously at the time, and they're totally forgotten as far as I know among those who were actually produced by this moment, philosophers of global justice. Let me show you how that occurred. So what the Vietnam War was to the birth uh, of liberal political philosophy generally, I think these events in the early 1970s were to global justice in particular. They were the sensitizing, events or rude awakening that precipitated a change in consciousness, at least in, in the, amongst the specific people who populate elite philosophy departments. Now, it may seem unsurprising that a massive growth of discourse about world economic relations would, would have an effect uh, in philosophy, but, of course, it always takes an individual to notice, and, uh, and, and Bites really gets credit for that. Rawls's text, if you have any memory of it, um, takes up a very conventional picture of what international affairs are about. It seems troubling now when we read a theory of justice that Rawls takes away our qualities, uh, our bodily endowments, our cultural location, our social position, our class position, but he leaves the national units of the extant world in place in the so-called original position from which he derives his principles of justice. I think that fact is an incredibly illuminating testament to the staying power of post-World War II national framings of welfarist aspirations. Uh, And when Rawls talked about international affairs, he postponed them to a second stage contract uh, in which state parties would bargain with one another just as the textbooks he read said they do. Bites came from an interesting background, which I don't have time to cover. He came out of the New Left, actually. uh, And I think he was reformulating it and de-radicalizing it in inventing global justice. I'm gonna focus for a bit on his first professional exercise. If you're a graduate student, you should be thrilled to hear it's his first semester graduate student uh, term paper which then appeared in 1975 under the title Justice and International Affairs. He offers a serious criticism of Rawls's uh, way of thinking about nation and globe in this early text. How could Rawls treat the nation state as freestanding analytically? Well, first we have to know how Rawls had defended that stance. He thought we could think of each nation as self-sufficient and if so, then we could reason about justice from box to box. They were analytically separable, and their state borders were therefore defensible. Bites makes two big arguments in response. For one thing, natural resources worldwide are unequally distributed. And if that's so, then we can't treat international affairs as a second stage problem. Uh, now, interestingly, if you are, care about Rawziana, Bytes is actually extending Rawls here. Rawls had insisted at home for the purposes of domestic justice as treating our natural endowments like bodily endowments as, um, a, a, as, more, as, as distributed in morally arbitrary ways, which then would allow us to redistribute the fruits of our of labors based on our endowments. And Bytes says, why not treat natural resources in the world that way, but if we do, then we can't reason uh, as if na- nation states are separate places. But then there's Bites's second and more bold argument. And he claims basically that it's empirically false to suppose that we could disentangle states in their economic relations with each other and given the role of multinationals. Uh, we couldn't possibly defend a contract governing distributive justice in the age of, uh, 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 of, of international business, capital flows, and what uh, Bites called, along with a lot of other people, actually interdependence. Now that first line of criticism about natural resources had accepted the state containers with which Rawls worked and simply argued that people wouldn't enter their nations without first confronting the reality of unequal resources. But in this second argument he offers, Bites insists that no one familiar with the way the world works economically, or at least the way it was newly perceived to work in the 1970s, could conclude that we could enter separate state-based ventures in social justice. We're just too connected to laborers, for example, far away to suppose we could formulate justice separately from them. Here are some quotations. If evidence of global economic and political interdependence shows the existence of a global scheme of social cooperation, we shouldn't view national boundaries as having fundamental moral significance. And if so, then uh, Rawls's analytical expedient of proceeding directly to state-based social contracts fails. Byte's response to this uh, outcome by sticking to Rawls, by concluding that there would have been a global bargain, a global social contract. The state-centered image of the world, he finishes, has lost its normative relevance because of the rise of global economic interdependence. Principles of distributive justice, these are all his words, must apply in the first instance to the globe as a whole and then derivatively to nation states. Now, whatever one thinks about this development, and I'm about to be very critical of it, I think we have to acknowledge that we're in the presence of a major departure or rupture in the history of liberalism in hearing those lines. The social contract idea, as far as I can tell, based on human rights, had been restricted unanimously from its invention in the early modern period to Rawls in the early 1970s, to boundary territories and peoples. Now Bites gives up that restriction in the name of a global social contract, something as far as I know, maybe one exception in the course of the French Revolution, no one had ever proposed before. Now in this first graduate student paper published in 1975, Bites actually begins the article with a citation from the NIEO declaration, which I read before. I think Bites felt he was doing the work of the NIEO. He was justifying normatively providing philosophical ammunition for what the NIEO had already proposed politically. In the text, Bites directly indicted multinationals uh, along with the trade rules, which he said a created a dynamic in which value created in one society, usually poor is used to uh, benefit members of other societies, usually rich. So he, he believes there's reverse redistribution going on. Uh, even more revealingly, and in just the same vein, Bites reveal- was relying on uh, dependency economics, which was the school of economic theory most associated with the NIEO spokesman, and concluded that poor countries' economic relations with the rich are actually worsening the economic relations that the poor enjoy or suffer. And it was because interdependence was giving the poor of the world such a raw deal that Bites was so angry at John Rawls, who, in Bites's word, missed the point of international justice. Very powerful uh, indictment. Now, it's true that Bites never directly answers the question with which he opens this first article when he asks whether efforts at large scale institutional reform like the NIEO, are justified. But when he concludes the article, it sounds like he's supporting it. The duty to secure just institutions where none exist endows certain political claims made in the non-ideal world, i.e. the real world in which we're living, with moral seriousness. Claims for food aid, development assistance, and world monetary and trade reform rest on principles of global justice. In other words, it properly globalized, the social contract forces us to support the NIEO. So then something very fateful happens and Chuck changes his mind in the course of building his house and I wanna show how that happened now. Bytes developed this article into an epic-making book which appeared four years later. It's called Political Theory and International Relations. And he adds a lot and updates a lot. And I wanna investigate how global justice was changed even in the course of being invented. Some things were happening in the world. Uh, The NIO is losing salience, as I mentioned. Above all, I think the human rights revolution occurs in the United States where Charles Bites is working thanks to the uh, election of Jimmy Carter to the presidency. Rawls, uh, you may not know, never used the phrase human rights in a theory of justice. Uh, I doubt he even knew of the universal declaration because almost no one did in 1971. But after 1977, the idea of human rights became more present and his followers began to think about the international ramifications of rights thinking in ways Rawls never had. But I think the passing of the high tide of the NIEO is more relevant to explaining how Bites finished his invention of global justice because he turned his book to an attack on the NIEO, even though he had been inspired by it just a few years before. A large part of the book, the, the second third of it, is dedicated to an indictment of what Beitz called the morality of nation-states central to the NIO, even when it was pursuing as it was a global reordering. When you look at his original article, Beitz had talked about the right to self-determination favorably. He said it was violated when America interfered with Salvador Allende's Chilean experiment and he'd suggested that it was perhaps even more at stake in South Africa. Uh, Bites' mature text however took as its main purpose uh, not just the plausibility of globally scaled principles of distributive justice but a, a very serious attack on the whole idea of self-determination. Uh, Bites wrote It's the interests of persons, individuals, that are fundamental. National interests are relevant to the justification of international principles only to the extent they're derived from interests of individuals. Now, Bites rejected the premise of the autonomy of states, uh, uh, and uh, he engaged with the principle of self-determination that I mentioned had been the buzzword for the NIEO's work in United Nations fora. He claimed that the only viable interpretation of the idea of collective self-determination was that it realizes individual rights, that it was, in his words, a means for promoting conformity with principles that would be agreed to in a hypothetical social contract. Self-determination is but the means to the end of social justice. And if it cut against empires and South African apartheid, Bites now added, it was because it cut against any claim supporting unjust regimes, including potentially the new regimes of the new post-colonial states. Here's, a, I think, a remarkable quotation from bites While colonial government is usually illegitimate according to a theory of global justice, there's no assurance that successor governments will be any more legitimate according to the same principles. So where he'd been inspired by the post-colonial states and their uh, their an- new international economic proposals, now he seems to be turning against that very nation state. Now, there's no contradiction exactly uh, in these moves, but they they do represent a new mood. And I think they reflect a widespread sense in the West that was crystallizing in just this new moment of 1977 and eight, that self-determination had gone too far. It provided immoral foundations for global order. Uh, Now, when many started to talk about human rights in my country, Bites insisted that they remember that economic and social rights had been part of the Universal Declaration, which was almost forgotten in the 1970s. But Bites was unusual in that respect, but very, uh, a man of his time, in another. I'm suggesting that the invention of global justice fit exactly into a turn against third world nationalism that has defined the human rights revolution as deeply as any other factor. As Arthur Schlesinger put it in 1977, this is the year when uh, Bites is revising his work, and also the breakthrough year for human rights, really, in the world. States may meet all the criteria of national self-determination and still be blots on the planet. Human rights will be the way of reaching the deeper principle, which is individual self-determination. And then when we look at the finalization of Beitz's book, we find other big shifts. He doubts the validity of dependency economics now and rejects the stark charges of structural imperialism in which he'd believed a few years before he retooled his discussion of economic interdependence uh, keeping his case for a global difference principle uh, but uh, offered a much less emphatic diagnosis of the role of multinational corporations in promoting global misery and uh, offered a much rosier account uh, of uh, foreign investment, thanks to the growth and efficiency uh, they allow. Uh, he rejected uh, also the radical economic thought, the dependency economics that he would relied on a few years before. He now argued that the main step to take intellectually was to shift to a new framework in which, as I mentioned, it's not the disempowerment of, the, of collective and state economies that mattered as the NIEO insisted. It's really the violations of individual rights including economic rights. It's especially unfortunate in Bites' words that criticisms of dependence have been framed in terms of deprivation of national autonomy. The objectionable features of dependence like excessive exercises of state power or large internal distributive inequalities might be reproduced, he writes, by an apparently autonomous state. So now he no longer has just Chile or South Africa in mind, uh, now he has the developmentalist and potentially despotic uh, post-colonial state in his sights. Now to be clear, Bites still hews to this radical idea of global distributive justice, which is incredibly radical in relation to global wealth patterns in just the same way that Rawls's original difference principle is radical today still. My point rather is that Bites is incorporating criticisms of the very post-colonial state that had invented the NIEO uh, on which Bites had had to draw to propound the global difference principle in the first place. In fact if we look at the scene in the North Atlantic we find that Bites' worries correspond with some of the most conservative North Atlantic critics of the NIEO. Let me consider for a minute Robert W. Tucker who was I think the most uh, notable of these critics. He polemicized against the NIEO relentlessly from the pages of Commentary Magazine which is uh, then a newly neoconservative American magazine. Tucker stormed that the notion that there should be economic solidarity beyond borders, though it was now considered a necessary truth that needs no defense in his angry words, was something that no one even thought of until just a few years ago. And actually, he cites in his defense John Rawls, uh, who proves that such concerns were not even considered morally relevant uh, uh, in 1971 in this leading philosophical text. And yet Bites, I think, even though he's insisting that justice be global, distributive justice be global, also elevates into a matter of abstract principle some of the very arguments that critics of the of the NIEO, like Tucker offered when they insisted that the NIEO was an alliance that wants to reshape the world a geopolitical campaign, uh, not the pursuit of individual justice for its own sake. Here's Tucker, however the state system is defined uh, that's held responsible for the present global inequalities of wealth, the NIO isn't condemning the state system. Uh, and of course he's right about that. On the contrary, Tucker continues, it's through the institution of the nation state and of course cooperation amongst the new states that the historically oppressed and disadvantaged are mounting a successful challenge to the persisting just inequalities. Tucker inferred from this point that the NIO was a power play, and it was. Uh, that uh, it was just a power play, not a normative enterprise and should be unmasked as a Machiavellian ploy rather than a campaign for justice. Bites responds to this fact in a different way. He wants to make sure that we replace the NIEO's call for interstate equity with one for interpersonal equity. Tucker wrote, a global redistribution of income and wealth shouldn't be celebrated if it's largely affected by, and in the name of, nation-states by agrees, He says, the effect of shifting from a status to a cosmopolitan point of view is to open up the state to external moral assessment, and perhaps political interference, and to understand persons rather than states as the ultimate subjects of international morality. Now, I don't want to take the comparison between the liberal and the neocon too far. Bytes still wants a form of global justice. Tucker wants to nip it in the bud. But in Bytes's thinking, a normative specificity the NIEO hadn't needed for its own prior insisted that the world's unjustly organized came in the context of an attack on the nation state that the Alliance had viewed as the forum and agent of, not an obstruction to, its proposed global reordering. For Bites, states had to be reduced to mere intermediaries with no moral standing in and of themselves between global principles of justice and deserving individuals. And for the, uh, the NIO's subaltern internationalism, its alliance politics it's just not in Bites' thought, uh, along with the problem of agency in general. Who puts global justice into practice? That's not something global justice tells us. In its rejection of, of state-based ethics that the NIO had, had celebrated, and in the end, in his skepticism of the NIO's plans for institutional re- reimagination of the world order, I think Bites, having first been inspired by the NIO, has now moved beyond it decisively. The NIO was destroyed or failed, there's a debate about that, Uh, and definitively by the time of the global debt crisis of the early 80s. Global justice transcended this formative crucible I've tried to reconstruct, and in fact, not only survived, but prospered enormously after 1989, uh, for some observers coming close to uh, defining the cutting edge of Anglophone political thought even today. Well, I wanna conclude now, I'm hoping that the story uh, 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 makes sense, whatever morals you might wish to draw from it. Uh, I'm going to draw some of my own and see what you think. I want the morals to be about the debate I began with. Should we think of human rights, international human rights, uh, as accidentally concurrent with or unhappily complicitous in the erosion of national welfareist ideals? Uh, even as, of course, no global welfareism has followed in compensation in our time. I think there's uh, evidence for both sides of that, uh, uh, of, of that debate uh, uh, in the evidence, uh, uh, in the research I presented. If you wanted to pursue a causal rather than conjunctural relationship between human rights and so-called neoliberalism, as, as say Marxists do, um, you couldn't fail to note the shared individualism and anti-statism of these things, which unites them across an otherwise very considerable divide. And it's also true that the early neoliberals of the 1970s, in fact, far more so than the doppelganger cosmopolitans I've been addressing today, targeted the NIO for wrath and destruction as, as a very good historical research has shown us. I wanna argue instead that it's really the failure of global justice to theorize the conditions of its own historical origins uh, and its own perspective enactment that has condemned it uh, to the fate it suffers, which is the fate of human rights in general. It mutely witnesses the reversals uh, towards the progress uh, to the very ideals it announces. So consider first that global justice emerged as a Rawlsian reinterpretation of an already extant political project, not as an exercise in unworldly dreaming. The initial prescriptive outcomes uh, of global justice in Bites' his Hand were just the NIEO's program. And arguably, if they hadn't been supplied from the outside, there would have been nothing to normatively justify in Rawlsian terms in the first place. Uh, So obviously there's a lot to say about the relationship between abstract normative theorizing and enacted political agendas. I think it's incontestable that without the NIEO, global justice wouldn't have come into being, at least in the form, possibly not at the time uh, uh, it did. Then we have to think about a prospective enactment of global justice. After its invention as a body of pure normative demands, global justice has seen history make a mockery of its egalitarian precepts. Now, of course, the same is true of the difference principle Rawls offered for national welfare states. Bites is like Rawls. They both look as if they planned on opening an era a new era of social justice, one at home, one at the global level. Actually, both seem to have let loose an owl of Minerva on very partial achievements that their thought has done nothing to extend. Uh, Indeed, our theories of global justice uh, uh, and justice simpliciter were announced uh, at precisely the time Uh, when the difference principle was much closer to a reality within North Atlantic welfare states and perhaps on the world stage than since. One response to the tragic fate of these philosophers is to conclude that it wasn't their fault. If just as at the moment they hit on the best available justificatory principles for distribution locally and globally, history went the other way and rather dramatically. How could it be their fault? But I think it, on second thought it's fair to wonder if the relationship between normative claims and historical projects matters theoretically far more than they've been willing to acknowledge or consider and it's with this that I'll finish. Global justice took liberalism past a global turn in the face of and then on the ruins of schemes that were alternatively global and perhaps more lucid about the intersection of norms and power. As if the NIO had never been, the main conceptual debate within global justice is uh, between the state and the globe with uh, figures like David Miller of Oxford or Michael Walzer defending the moral relevance of nation-states generally against cosmopolitan justice that Bites invented. Uh, Those figures, though, don't defend uh, poor states specifically, either on their own or in alliance. If you look at surveys of global justice, they tell us that the main debate is a dichotomy between statism and cosmopolitanism. And yet the latter was born inspired then antagonized by an alternative version of global justice that combined a commitment to state prerogatives with a demand for global reordering. In my view, Bytes' criticism of the NIEO seems especially troubling because it doesn't seem like better agents than the subaltern states themselves have subsequently appeared on the scene. Rawls's dissident students aiming at global justice then have been companions of market fundamentalism worldwide in developing a form of thought that may neglect what the conditions could be of its own perspective institutionalization. They leave agency out. Not only have our theories of global justice generally failed since the NIO to assist any movement to resist the, local inju- uh, local in- uh, the victory of local and global injustice in our time in the form of galloping inequality. Uh, actually, for all their attempts to provide a floor of protection in the socioeconomic domain, human rights movements have nothing to say about inequality or distributive justice generally. They're not even trying to address it at the level of norms or practices. But more importantly, it's hard to imagine that either individualist norms on paper or the sort of human rights regime or advocacy we've known could provide the sort of agency for structural reform that inequality makes so plainly necessary. I conclude from all this that global justice is very interesting and the human rights movement is inspiring in its way. But to the extent we care about distributive justice, we may need another form of thought than contemporary normative theory provides and another form of politics than human rights for all their contributions have brought to the world in defining our time very deeply. Thank you very much.
0: As said before, there is now a few minutes for Q&A.
2: Thank you. Uh, It seems to me that these men are irrelevant because we actually do have an institutional process for bringing about uh, justice, which is the adoption of UN conventions, whereas you've said your people have no practice. But... In spite of the fact that I see them as completely and utter irrelevancies in the structural, governmental and institutional processes, can I ask you what view did they have of reproduction? Because I ask this um, because I come from a health faculty and when one looks at China, uh, the global health and well-being of the world has increased massively since 1949. And one can put that down significantly to the one child policy and to the early health care and education policies before the one child policy. Um, and yet I live in a country where China has gone from a position of being seen as jumping in rowboats coming south to take over our lands. To today, when they're pilloried for their one child policy. Now, Peter Costello said, Why does a woman have three children? If she has three children, then one of them's taking the place of all the people who are reproducing like rabbits in the areas of the world suffering desertification. So, Mao, in my view, had a philosophy where reproduction was central to development, what's the philosophy of your pointless man?
1: OK, thank you for that question, which is very interesting. Um, I'll, I'll start by saying I, I, they, they say nothing about the matter of reproduction. Uh, in their defense, it's not their topic. Um, I think China is quite relevant to the larger picture that I'm, I'm thinking about, not just for the interesting reasons you state, but because um, Chi- the Chinese state has been the, the most successful agent, agent in human history in bringing uh, human beings out of poverty uh, in the last uh, several decades, at least if we wanna use the tote board or, or kind of a numerical approach to, to judging this fact. Um, meanwhile, the 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 human rights movement, which has tried to not just normatively outline, but construct a a a floor of protection uh, in the economic and social domain, has a much murkier record. Uh, 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 So uh, my difficulty is that it may be irrelevant. Now philosophers, uh, uh, such as the ones I've spoken about, I think have a defense to irrelevancy. Uh, at least in part, much more a much better defense to irrelevancy than human rights regimes and movements, which is that their job is to discover what the correct principles of social, including global economic justice, are in the first place. Uh, my, my trouble with, with these particular philosophers is not that they're philosophers. If I, if I just were going to consign thinkers to irrelevancy, of course I wouldn't study them. My trouble uh, is with their form of philosophy, which as I said, um, seems to um, care most about normative precision, but not about thinking about uh, the theoretical problem of what the conditions are, the real political conditions in which principles get enacted. Uh, And so my, my trouble is that if you like, philosophers of this sort are irrelevant in approximately the same way that the human rights movement have been. They, they don't have the right tools in the one case to change the world in the socioeconomic domain. I think for the philosophers, they don't have the right tools to think about the change of the world. And so if that's right, we would need some other kind of movement and some other kind of philosophy, but not just you know, dismissing men or women who think uh, kind of in a more blanket way.
3: I couldn't help thinking of um, uh, people like um, Jürgen Habermas um, with his uh, deliberative uh, communication uh, paradigm. Yes. Uh, it seems to me um, with the looming uh, catastrophe uh, of uh, climate change that there's been an enormous paradigm shift in terms of the, uh, the carbon uh, trading scheme economics globally. Um, Small um, states, I'm thinking, for instance, of the um, ASIOS, the um, Association of Small Island, Island States, um, they are subjected to a, a, an enormous um, uh, imbalance of power, or disparity of power. Have, have you got any thoughts a, a, about how um, we could be more inclusive uh, in the first world towards... Um, the much smaller um, state powers um, vis-a-vis uh, climate change problems
1: uh, so, so you, you raised two, two important somewhat different uh, you know lines of inquiry. Um, I, do, I don't think Jurgen Habermas's thought is, is all that um, germane here, just because to my knowledge, um, while he certainly became in, in, in the later, part of his life, still ongoing obviously, a a human rights philosopher having been a Marxist uh, in his youth. He hasn't really um, taken up distributive justice at the global level. Um, He's much more someone who's interested in the globalization of democracy, which might have some impact on on distributive matters. so to my knowledge, for example, he hasn't commented on Bites or, or later, f- even more famous figures like Thomas Pogge and others who have, have really made global justice so central. Uh, your, your larger, you know, concern obviously goes way beyond any expertise I have, which is just that of a historian, you know, peering at these, these uh, you know, men. Um, it, it does raise, it you know, it does raise concerns that fit into our current debates about climate change. For one thing, we have to have a, a theory in, in in a domain that where I think m- many of our normative uh, intuitions are are quite unstable about what climate justice would look like there There's no doubt that that the sorts of philosophers I have in mind have long since moved on to climate justice as a domain of thinking um, what Would it be unfair uh, to impose the same sort of emission standards on uh, countries that are trying to industrialize just as our countries did in wrecking the world up to this point? Um, That's, I think that I I haven't, I am not sure what the answer to that question is, but it's obviously one that uh, is, is hotly debated in global justice. And of course, the central question I think within such a debate is what do we say about the historical belatedness so-called and, Im- and, and, and disempowerment of many of the countries that now claim their right to emit, just as the global north and as well as places in the global south like australia got a chance to omit before this was on the normative agenda uh, uh, of politicians or philosophers that my paper was really about the claims of the historically weak states uh, for more power at a moment when it looked as if they might have a lot more power than they've proven to have. And in that sense, it's very connected to this burning debate you rightly uh, mention about climate justice. Um,
4: Thank you very much uh, for your lecture. Um, My question relates to perhaps a criticism of Rawls and Baytes, Uh, running along the lines that perhaps some of these philosophers uh, still focus too much on peoples, as in states, and have not shifted with human rights to a focus on what we would call, say, persons or individuals. And if I can be so daring as to ask you to comment on something fairly close to us in Australia at the moment, currently uh, on the waters of the Indian Ocean, um, there are some more than 100 uh, refugees caught and trapped on an Australian government ship. Um, And so we have the question of human rights, the human rights of those individuals. And when we come to try to understand what's going on there and where international global justice comes into play, could this relate perhaps to the confusion of, of whether we're dealing with state actors or talking about the rights of individuals? Uh, the other area that, that relates to this too perhaps is Palestine and, and Israel currently. But I'd just be very interested in your comments on
1: that. Sure. So, so I talked just about a very precise moment in the history of philosophy. Of course, since that moment, um, John Rawls, Um, Has died but before that he did begin to think much more seriously about international affairs and and published you know his major book on the topic which is called The Law of Peoples. Um, I hear you as actually on the side of of the cosmopolitans um, which is to say that you think the the state could at best be a kind of tool or intermediary that helps um, vindicate the rights of individuals. And to the extent nation states are giving, given any normative authority, including the normative authority to exclude, um, they risk trampling on, the, on human rights. Well, that was Bites's entire point. And it's, it's why global justice came out of a very considerable skepticism about nationalism uh, and the nation state, uh, notably third world nationalism. Uh, I think Rawls actually never went so far as Bites, um, because, uh, and he 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 was criticized pretty bitterly by many of his his students for um, sticking to the normative importance of the nation state, uh, just as he had in a theory of justice. Even as new claims about international human rights became much more popular, um, I guess I would say in in in. It, it, the, the, in defense of my, my own, um, let's say, uh, uh, affection for the NIEO, that um, there's a lot to be said for the nation state and for the welfareist inclusion it aspired to provide and did provide in, in developed economies. Uh, so it, it may be true that it does very bad things like exclude people on boats. but. It also has done very good things for those it included, like uh, provide uh, welfare, including some modicum of equality, uh, something we don't care much about anymore. So my, my worry is that this cosmopolitan turn, which your question I think exemplifies, um, sounds good because it focuses on the terrible destitution of outsiders. But there was a time when we cared about much more robust norms than we do today for the sake of insiders. And so the question would be how to get the balance right, in my view.
3: Thank you so much for a fabulous paper. Thank you. I wanted to ask you to go back to um, one point in the story. Um, I think it was 1977 you said when um, Bites is revising the manuscript for his book. And I was really intrigued by this um, idea of a, of an economic argument kind of threaded within, um, and his um, abandonment and criticism of um, dependency theory. Right. And I may have just not been listening closely enough, but I, didn't, I just wanted to hear you talk a bit more about what he um, would have in its place, what he installed in its place, and whether there was some, if only incipient, theorization of what you term, and is the foil in your story, market fundamentalism, uh, within that moment.
1: That's a fantastic question. Um, so for this sort of thinker, facts about the world are, 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 I think, very different than facts about the world are for people who think in historical and sociological ways. Um, in, in the early part of his career, it's, it's just a fact about the world that, um, that makes global justice exigent that multinationals are so bad, as he thought or that prevailing trade rules immiserate the poor even further. Um, so it, it's not my claim that you know, he, he was a Marxist or something like that, or that he was a real dependency theorist in the early part of his career. I think it's just notable to try to understand what's motivating him to see what his commitments are about the empirical facts about the world. And then when we fast forward, to the the later period I dealt with. And of course, we're only, again, dealing with a few years distance in the man's 20s, in, in absolute fairness, to a very nice guy. Um, he I'm not claiming that somehow um, he, he, he developed an alternative economic theory because even in the early period, he didn't have to have one in his own terms. It's just that I think it's revealing that he no longer believes um, that the institutional features of the world order that had motivated him a few years before are true. Um, and so it's, I think, revealing that um, he changes his mind, but I'm not suggesting that um, he was ever an economist or ever needed to be committed to some particular economic theory. I actually think, you know, when I, when I closed the paper and saying, we really should want a different form of thought than this sort of normative philosophy gives us, um, I think we would need one that was, let's say, more more genuinely an economic theory, one that connected norms to institution and acknowledged how bound up normative perception always is with facts we hold true about the world, which then connects them to, you know, theories of history and society. I mean, there are lots of different such theories. Marxism is one, but not the only one. Bites was never such a theorist. So if that's the case, I don't think we can criticize him for not being one. He wasn't, he was just trying to provide the right normative account of our obligations.
0: Uh, With that, I I think we should close uh, the discussion. And I can see, I think you can see why Professor is the most important intellectual historian of his generation. Except for th- <laughs> except for except for one, and uh, we're tremendously grateful for Sam to come and share his uh, current research with us, and then to engage in a discussion after the paper. And with that, I think we show our appreciation. <laughs>